On Sunday evenings, we're thinking together about Nehemiah, the man, the book, and the message. In a series of sermons, we've called a Project Build, thinking together about lessons from the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem in the 5th century B.C., for the building of the church in the 21st century A.D. And we come tonight to Nehemiah and chapter 3. I'm tempted to say that I've got the easy job tonight because all I've got to do is preach this chapter. Uh, Poor Gordon had to read it. Uh, But here we are in Nehemiah uh, chapter 3 where the rebuilding uh, begins. And I don't know whether it struck you as we read the chapter together a few moments ago, but one of the first things that struck me uh, when I was uh, studying uh, this chapter uh, during the week was that over 30 times in uh, the 32 verses of this chapter, so that's roughly once a verse, we find one or other of these phrases next to him, or next to them, or after him, or after them. So, for example, after verse 1, which has told us that then Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brethren the priests and built the sheep gate, they consecrated it and hung its doors, they built as far as the Tower of the Hundred, and consecrated it then as far as the Tower of Hananel, We read verse 2, next to Eliashib, the men of Jericho built, and next to them, Zachar, the son of Imri, built. And time and again in the subsequent verses, next to him, next to them, next to him, next to them. Sometimes after him, after them, like verse 23, for example. Verse 22, having spoken about the priests and the men of the plain making repairs, we read verse 23, after him, Benjamin and Hashab, made repairs opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Maasiah, the son of Ananiah, made repairs by his house. So this repeated emphasis, next to him, next to them, after him, after them. I'm calling the message from this chapter to this evening, side by side, side by side. That's what these people were. Uh, back there in the middle of the 5th century as they sought to uh, rebuild and to repair the walls of Jerusalem. They were side by side. They were in it together. They were together in the great work uh, to which the Lord had uh, called them. They worked together to achieve what they couldn't have done alone. And surely this is a picture for us of what church life uh, should be like. Yes, as Christians, in our personal lives, we are called to honor the Lord Jesus Christ and to be witnesses for him. But we are also called to come together in local church families and in the local church to be side by side, to be in it together, to be and to do together what we could never be or could never do on our own. So side by side, is our theme tonight. Now, I don't know how you react when you read a chapter like Nehemiah chapter 3. Uh, perhaps you just see it as a, a long list of names and a long list of details, and uh, you're thinking to yourself, uh, you can't really get to Nehemiah chapter 4 quickly enough. 
Or perhaps yours is a different temptation. Perhaps you, you read a chapter like this and you see all these names and you see all these details and you think, well, there must be some kind of hidden meaning in here somewhere and we need to spiritualize every name and every detail and read in all sorts of stuff which was never really meant to be there. Well, we're going to try to avoid both of those things tonight. But what I want to do really is, with the Lord's help, just to highlight half a dozen things which it's difficult to miss, really, if you spend very long thinking about what we have here in Nehemiah chapter 3. Half a dozen things which were true of God's people then in the work that they were called to do. And half a dozen things which need to be true of us as the Lord's people today in the work that we are called to do in the building of Christ's church in our place and in our time. Six things. Number one, activity. Activity. It's pretty much impossible, isn't it, to read Nehemiah 3 and not get an overwhelming sense of activity. The chapter begins at the Sheep Gate, uh, verse 1. And you might notice that it also ends at the Sheep Gate, uh, verse uh, 32. Uh, And in a sense, this chapter, it circles the walls. It takes us all the way around the city, uh, from the Sheep Gate, uh, back uh, to the Sheep Gate again. And what do we find as we tour the city walls with uh, Nehemiah chapter 3? Well, we find that there is activity all the way around. There are repairs and there is rebuilding everywhere. The stretches of walls, the gates, the towers, all the different things that need to be rebuilt or repaired. There is an overwhelming sense of activity. People are busy. There is a wholehearted engagement in the various tasks that need to be performed. That was how God's work in this world got done then. And that is still how God's work in this world gets done now. Churches should be hives of activity. Now we know that there's a wrong activism. There is a wrong approach to church life that just equates activity with godliness, and that thinks, well, so long as we're all busy, everything must be good. We know that isn't always the case. But the remedy for a wrong activism isn't inactivity. The remedy for the fact that it's possible to be busy for the wrong reasons or in the wrong way isn't, well, let's just not really be too bothered, and let's not really attempt too much. No, churches should be hives of activity. They should be, we should be busy. Places where God's people are committed to the work that God has called us to do. Activity. But a second thing that strikes us uh, from this chapter tonight is unity. Unity. Again, it's impossible to read this chapter, isn't it, without coming away with an overwhelming sense of of unity. That the people are together and as one in this great work of rebuilding and repairing the walls of the city. There's the odd fly in the uh, the ointment, such as the Tekoite nobles in the second half of the fifth verse. uh, Verse 5, next to them the Tekoites made repairs. We're grateful for the Tekoites making their repairs, but their nobles did not put their shoulders uh, to the work of their alone. So there were those who were not as united and not as committed and not as vigorous as they might have been 
Uh, and that reminds us that our unity as God's people here on the earth will never be perfect. That must wait for heaven. It must wait for glory. But still, there's this overwhelming sense in this chapter of unity, of togetherness, of being at one. It's clear that some are leading. We saw last week uh, from uh, towards the end of chapter 2 that uh, uh, Nehemiah uh, was very much the leader and uh, that he uh, called the people uh, to join him in the work. You remember chapter 2 verse 17, uh, Nehemiah said to the people, let us build. And they responded uh, to Nehemiah in the next verse, verse 18, let us rise up. And build. So Nehemiah, after whom this book is named, exercised great leadership in this tremendous uh, task of rebuilding. There were also the priests. I think it's not insignificant that our third chapter begins with Eliashib, the high priest, and his brethren, the priests. They rise up and they build the sheep gate, consecrating it and uh, hanging its doors and so on. Uh, These priests, led by the high priest, who had a particular responsibility uh, for the people of God, they they lead by example, by uh, giving themselves uh, to this work. And there were others who led. We read, for example, in verse 9, about Rephiah, the son of Hur, leader of the half-district of Jerusalem. Verse 12, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, leader of the other half-district of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Verse 14, Malchijah, the son of Rechab, the leader of the district of Beth Hakaren. And uh, verse 15, the next verse, uh, Shalom, the son of Colhose, leader of the district of uh, Mizpah. So there were these district leaders and these leaders of groups and, and leaders of teams. So various people were, were leading. But although some are leading, all are mobilized. We read of people all over being mobilized. We've got the men of Jericho in verse 2, the men of Gibeon and, and Mizpah in verse 7, and the men of the plain in verse 22, and far more besides. All are mobilized. And with some leading and all mobilized, people cooperate. There's a great sense of harmony in the work, isn't there, as we read this chapter. Uh, it's not about competition, but it's about cooperation. God's people are working together to achieve uh, this uh, great aim. And teamwork uh, flourishes. We find various teams in this chapter, uh, such as the uh, the Levites under Rehum in verse 17, and uh, others under uh, Babai in the next verse, uh, verse 18. And it doesn't take too much effort, does it, for us to make application of this uh, to uh, building the church in our day and uh, generation. There are those whom the Lord has called to lead. And by that we don't just mean elders. We know there are also deacons who lead in the practical affairs of the church. But there are many who lead in church life in different ways. They may never be elders or or deacons, but they may uh, be leading small groups. They may be leading particular ministries or activities. Uh, Leading, just getting a particular job done. A few people say, yes, we'll do it. And someone leads and organizes and sees to it that it is done and uh, that it is done well. Leadership is necessary in uh, uh, in every sphere of church life. But also this sense of all being mobilized. That the responsibility for the work doesn't just rest with a few, but that it rests with the many. That we all have a responsibility uh, to be busy uh, doing what we can in uh, the life and work of a gospel church. 
people cooperating, not being about competition, not trying to outdo one another in any wrong sense, not being precious about things that are our particular responsibility uh, and being uh, difficult about people uh, who uh, want to help. Not competition, but cooperation. A great sense of working together and teamwork. A big job, perhaps, but broken down into different parts and different teams taking responsibility for different things and people and groups being empowered to give of themselves and to give of their best to the service of King Jesus in the life of a local church. Unity. Nehemiah 3 is a wonderful picture of the unity that exists among God's people in their best days. And always something of this unity of Nehemiah 3 increasingly be our ours as a church as we go forward together. Activity. Unity. Number three. Diversity. Diversity. There's unity here. But there's also diversity. Because unity among God's people is never meant to be uniformity. What we find rather here in Nehemiah 3 are different people in different places performing different tasks using different gifts. Some would have been older and some would have been younger. Some more experienced in the work, others less so. Some were rebuilding, rebuilding parts of the wall which had been broken down completely. That needed particular skills. Others, they were repairing, repairing parts of the walls which had been damaged but not broken down altogether. That required other particular skills. Just think a little about all that would have been involved in this great project of rebuilding the walls of this great city, Jerusalem. There would have been ground to clear. There would have been materials to prepare. There would have been tools to maintain. There were gates to hang. We read about gates earlier. There were stairways to construct. We read about towers. Nobody could do everything. But everybody could do something. And when they worked together, in all their unity and yet in all their diversity, they were able to build something, the whole of which was greater than the sum of its parts. And again, it doesn't take much imagination, does it, uh, to make application of this uh, to the life and to the work of a gospel church. How the Lord brings us together, not because we're all the same, or because he wants us all to be the same but to use us as different people with different personalities to perform our different tasks using our different gifts. None of us in the church able to do everything, but everybody in the fellowship able to contribute something to the life and work of the church so that together we build something that is greater than the sum of its parts. Are you with me so far? Activity, it's here. Unity, it's here. Diversity, it's here. But I said half a dozen, so we're only halfway through. And number four, practicality. Practicality. It's very obvious, isn't it, that what we have here in Nehemiah 3 is not just romantic vision. Yes, it's good to dream. And clearly, there was a vision as to what needed to be done. But what we find here in Nehemiah chapter 3 is that vision being turned into reality. And in order for that vision to be turned into reality, in order for that dream to be fulfilled, it was necessary uh, for there to be planning. And it was necessary for, them, uh, for there to be organization. 
They needed to think in a serious way about the, I was going to say the nuts and bolts. Perhaps that's the wrong illustration if you're rebuilding a wall. You don't really do that with nuts and bolts, but you know what I mean. They needed to think about the nuts and bolts of how the job was going to be done. How was the work going to be executed? How was the job going to get done? They needed to be as efficient as they could possibly be. They needed to be as effective as they could possibly be. And we need to understand that those are not dirty words where the work of the gospel is concerned. Sometimes the impression is given, well, efficiency and effectiveness, these are, these are terms we, we import from the world and they have no place in uh, the church. Well, of course, we need to understand efficiency and effectiveness in a clearly Christian and gospel way. But the Lord does not call us as Christians, either individually in our Christian lives or together as churches, to be uh, inefficient or ineffective. He desires us to be efficient and effective in the great work to which he has called us. And yes, we are all in the Lord's hands. And we know that ultimately all depends upon him in the work of the gospel. We can aim at efficiency, we can aim at effectiveness. But if the Lord doesn't help and if the Lord doesn't bless, we'll achieve nothing. We know that, we understand that. But knowing that and understanding that is never an excuse for laziness on the one hand or ineptitude on the other. Rather, as gospel churches, we are called to be strategic. And we are called in prayerful dependence to seek to have the biggest impact for the gospel that we possibly can. There's practicality in every verse of this chapter. And as God's people, we need to be practical as we seek to build the church of Jesus Christ. But just as alongside unity, we saw diversity. So number five, alongside practicality, we see spirituality. Because again, it's clear from this third chapter of Nehemiah that this rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem, though it was a practical task, it was not just a practical task. But properly understood, it was also, indeed, properly understood, it was primarily a spiritual operation. And I believe that's emphasized from the very first verse of the chapter. We've quoted this verse a couple of times already, but here it comes again, verse 1. Then Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brethren the priests and built the sheep gate. They note this. They consecrated it and hung its doors. They consecrated it. I think this highlights the fact that they understood that it wasn't just a practical task that they were engaged in, but it was a spiritual operation. Why were they rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem at all? Why were they bothering with this great task? Well, as we think back to, to chapter 1, where Nehemiah was moved to tears when he heard that the, the walls of Jerusalem were broken down, we, we remember they were rebuilding for the glory of God, that God might be glorified. They were rebuilding for the good of God's people, that God's people might be encouraged. They were rebuilding for the furtherance of the gospel, that Jerusalem might stand as a light for the nations. And it was these things that were motivating the people of God in this great task to which the Lord had called them. And we know that church life includes many practical tasks. As we've said already, we need to be practical about the life and the work of the church. Instead of having our heads in the cloud, we need our feet on the ground. 
But at the same time, we need always to remember that though church life includes many practical tasks, it is fundamentally a spiritual operation. And even the most mundane and ordinary of practical tasks done in the life of a local church is a spiritual task done in the name of Christ and done for the furtherance of the gospel. And so in all we do, whether seemingly spiritual or practical, whether seemingly headline out front or back room and behind the scenes, in all we do in the life of the local church, we are to be motivated by these same motivations that Nehemiah and his uh, friends were all those years ago. An eye for the glory of God, a desire for one another's good, wanting the gospel to shine as a bright light in this dark world. And we're to do so in much prayer. We're to do so by making much of God's word. We're to do so in conscious dependence upon him. We're just surveying this chapter in a very obvious way this evening. We've seen activity and unity and diversity and practicality and spirituality. There's one thing more to make up our half dozen. Last but by no means least, generosity. I put it to you that there must have been great generosity in what, was, what is narrated to us here in uh, Nehemiah chapter 3. Just think about what was involved in all this rebuilding and uh, repairing. There was much labor, wasn't there? Human resource. So many people giving of their time uh, to the work. And there were so many uh, materials all sorts of materials that were necessary in order that these uh, walls were, were built, that these gates were, were hung and, uh, and so on. Human resource, other resources. And where did all these things come from? Well, we know on the one hand, in one sense, the Lord provided, as he always does, uh, for his work. But we know too that on the other hand, in another sense, the people gave. The people gave of their time. The people gave of their resources. And they must have done so generously. And they must have done so sacrificially in order for this great work to have been begun. And that is still the case in the work of the gospel. We know our God is Jehovah Jireh. He is the Lord who provides he is the one to whom we look. He is the one who makes provision for his people. But at the same time, we know that generally it is the Lord's way to make provision for his work through his people. It's the Lord who provides, but how does he do it? He provides through his people. He provides through us. As like these of Nehemiah's day, we give generously and sacrificially of our time and of our money, of whatever we have to give to the Lord's work. There's an old saying, isn't there, popularized by one of our uh, supermarkets, every little helps. And that was true in Nehemiah 3, and it's still uh, true today. We know that the Lord doesn't ask any of us to give what we can't, in other words, what we don't have, or to give what we shouldn't, in other words, things that ought to be prioritized elsewhere. But he does ask us to give what we can, and he does ask us to give what we should, whether that be time, whether that be money, whatever that might be. And perhaps you feel, well, I haven't got much to give. 
We remember on one occasion the Lord Jesus was in the temple and he saw people giving. And there were many who were giving a great deal. And, and then there was a poor widow woman who dropped two little coins that were worth next to nothing. And those who were giving there much looked down on the one giving so little. And yet you remember what the Lord Jesus said, I'm paraphrasing. He said, she gave more than all the rest because she gave all that she had. Yes, on one level, what she gave was worthless compared to the others. But the others, they were giving out of their plenty. But that poor widow woman, she gave all that she had. I say again, the Lord doesn't ask us. He doesn't call us to give what we can't or what we shouldn't. But he does call us to give what we can and uh, what we should. And to be generous and uh, sacrificial. Some may be time rich and money poor. Some may be money rich and time poor. But all that we would each one give what we can and give what we should. That increasingly as a local church family, we may resemble God's people as they rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem there in Nehemiah 3. That among many other important things, we may be a people characterized by activity, characterized by unity, characterized by diversity, characterized by practicality, characterized by spirituality, and characterized by generosity. We could not be called to a greater task than to be side by side with our Savior and side by side with one another in the building of a local church to the glory of Jesus Christ. May we not be found wanting, but by God's grace and to his glory alone, like these our faithful forebears of old, may we give ourselves with one mind and one heart to this great work, and may the Lord take to himself all the glory. Amen. Let's join in singing together our closing hymn. It's 384 in the hymn book, 384. Lord, from whom all blessings flow, perfecting the church below. The closing hymn.
grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.